You are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It is good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on top of a lampstand, and it shines all on all who are in the house. The word of God for the people of God. Now, as we prepare for this morning's sermon, I invite you to pray with and for me. Let us pray. O oh God, may the words of my mouth and may the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know how much you know about the Apostle Paul who wrote this morning's scripture passage, the, letter, the first letter to the Corinthians. He wrote much of the New Testament, in fact. But by all accounts, St. Paul was no Adonis. Listen to how he is described by one early church writer. Paul was a man of small stature, with a bald head and crooked legs, in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting in the middle. Another writer describes him as bald, having the general ruddiness of a pomegranate. Maybe my favorite description, though, comes from Lucian of Samosata, who was born some 60 years after Paul. And this is how he describes Paul in the Latin, no less, in curvo corpore erat parvo et contracto, which roughly translates to crooked, compacted, and contracted. That is some distance from the sexiest man alive. And it wasn't just how he looked. Paul's letters are full of references to his own weakness. He talks continually about a thorn in my side, some problem or fact of life that never really gets unpacked. It's a theme in all of his writing. It colors, in fact, much of our own Christian theology, considering that Paul wrote so much of the Bible. Paul's weakness is not a trope, in fact. To read Paul's writings is to encounter something very different from the preacher who flashes false humility as rhetorical flourish. What Paul is saying is that his weakness has power. For if God can work through somebody as weak as Paul... Well, God can work through anybody. The power of God is real. It is real. Not manipulative drivel from a carnival barker, but real. Paul says, don't mess up on purpose, but know that if you do mess up, when you do mess up, you've been given a good opportunity to reflect on the goodness of God, on God's grace, as God uses your weakness for God's glory. Paul writes, I stood in front of you with weakness, with fear, and a lot of shaking. My message and my preaching weren't 
presented with convincing wise words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. I did this so that your faith might not depend on the wisdom of people, but on the power of God. Friends, there is power in your weakness. Just last week, Janice Yates preached from this pulpit. She said that your mess-ups are a chance to share the grace of God with the world, and she is right. That is gospel truth. I want to affirm that. And I want to affirm that it goes beyond your mess-ups. I want you, I want all of us, to be a place of grace. A place that allows for failure. Thomas Edison famously said, I have not failed, I have only found 10,000 ways that did not work. But there is an extent to which faith is about much more than what you do. Whether or not it works out or not. Faith is about who and whose you are about what you hold dear. It is about your why. And if you are here this morning feeling like you don't have it all together, if you are feeling like an imposter in a room full of well-put-together Christians, boy, have I got good news for you. You are in good company. If you are feeling this morning crooked, compacted, and contracted, you might just be a theologian. (laughs) Now, it was just a few weeks ago that my four-year-old daughter proved that though both of her parents are preachers, she may well be the best theologian that lives in my house. My wife, Stacy, is a pastor. You may know she serves in Chambly. I serve here. So Sunday mornings in my house are a little bit of a dumpster fire. Sometimes we'll divide and conquer in order to make it out of the house in some semblance of time. So on this particular Sunday, Stacy took Emmeline, who's seven, and I took Annie with me, who's four. And let me tell you, that day Annie was not having it. If they gave out awards for tantrums, Annie would not only be four-year-old Annie rushing, she would be... Pulitzer Prize-winning four-year-old Annie Rushing. She fussed when I got her dressed. She fussed when I put her in the car. She fussed when I put her out of the car. I try to park in the farthest spot in the parking lot most Sundays to leave space for newcomers. And she fussed the whole way from that spot to the back door of the church, past the greeters, into the nursery, where my uh, my imagination was that she was scaring away any prospective parents who were thinking about dropping their kids off with this preacher's kid. She calmed down eventually. I calmed down eventually. And I mentioned that morning in worship before I stood up to preach that if you barely made it to church today, you should know that the pastor barely made it to church today. And it was more of a confession for me than anything else, really. It was a chance for me to catch my breath and start over. But I got an email a few weeks later from a family whose first Sunday just happened to be that day. I mentioned that I had been wrestling my kid in the parking lot. And they emailed me to say that they, 15 minutes before had been wrestling their kid in the parking lot. I stood in front of you that day with weakness, with fear and a lot of shaking. My message and my preaching weren't presented with convinced wise words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit. I did this 
so that your faith might not depend on the wisdom of people, but on the power of God. You know, this church has seen a great deal of growth in the last year in particular. It's been great to see. I wish I could claim credit for it, but I haven't yet demonstrated to you, if I haven't demonstrated to you this morning that I don't have it all together, you'll be convinced by the end of the sermon. Because of your faithfulness, we've paid all our apportionments. We increased our giving to mission. We ended the year with a financial surplus. We, ended, we added 50 members last year, which is tied for the highest year of growth in the last 20. The Spirit's good. You are an amazing church. And in the midst of that growth, I sometimes hear, it's good that we're growing, but we got a lot of things we got to work on before we grow some more. Sometimes I hear, oh, we got to get better at hospitality before we invite new people. Or I hear, we need to get more diverse before we start marketing. Or I hear, we need more people to serve coffee before we invite people to invite their friends. And the thing is, there is an extent to which each of these things is true. We should always work to be more hospitable. We should always wonder who's not here yet. We can always use more people for the brew crew. I bet you could sign up after church today. But if all you are after is excellence, let me encourage you to start looking for something other than a church. I'm not sure a church is what you want anyway. Maybe that's controversial. But my point is that the point isn't to be excellent. The point isn't to have it all together. The point is to be faithful. To not take yourself too seriously. To recognize that the call of Jesus isn't for someday when we finally have our wits about us, when it's all finally going great. The call of Jesus is now. It is as the hymn says, Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. give you one more example, a personal one, if you'll permit me. I've been reading a lot lately about aphantasia, which is a word I had never heard before a couple of weeks ago. Aphantasia is a condition of not having, having a functioning mind's eye. It's basically the inability to visualize anything with your eyes closed. I mean, if I ask you to close your eyes, you can try this if you like. Close your eyes and picture an apple. You can probably, if you're like most people, see it in your mind. You can see the color, maybe the sheen of the light, the texture. Maybe there's a leaf on it. Some of you can taste it. Some of you can smell it. Now, I'll tell you what I picture when I think of an apple. And that is nothing. I got no idea what that's like. I think all of you people have a superpower. When I close my eyes, I see black. I don't really dream in images. I don't really have a, an inner monologue. I suspect that I am among the one in 50 people who have aphantasia, who don't have a mind's eye. 
Now, when I learned about this word, I literally got a headache. It literally made my brain hurt. I mean, how do you explain what your thoughts are like to somebody? Have you ever tried to do that before? How do you understand when somebody tells you that the way that you think is defective? And I started to worry. I'll tell you what I said to my therapist. I said, I am a professional communicator. I speak for a living. Do I have the tools? Can I even do this? I was talking to a former parishioner. She's actually a professor of Renaissance poetry about this particular word, aphantasia. And this was her response. She said, Dalton, I'm thinking back to some of your sermons, the way that you describe things as concepts rather than as pictures. She said, I do think in images, but I wonder if this isn't one of the reasons I enjoyed listening to you so much. For one thing, that pair of sentences made me feel a whole lot better. It is amazing how far just a little bit of grace can go. But I also wonder, how much a weakness, something I thought I was missing out on, has actually spurred me forward to preach the gospel? It feels in a very serious way that it's not that God is using me despite my weaknesses. It feels at times as though maybe God is using me because of my weaknesses, through my weaknesses. Now, i got to tell you, it's not easy admitting this stuff. Nobody likes to admit their own weaknesses. I certainly don't. I'm a preacher, for goodness sake. So I guess you're welcome to use your weakness as an excuse. But if you do that, you should know what the Gospel of Matthew has to say about it. Salt doesn't do very much good sitting in a cupboard. Hiding a light under a basket seems like a pretty big waste of time, not to mention something of a fire hazard. You were created, you with your unique set of gifts and weaknesses, you were created in God's image. You are not an accident. You aren't perfect, but you are beloved. And if you spend all of your time hiding your light under a basket because your light shines a little dim or it flickers every now and again or it's a color you didn't expect, you're going to be hiding for a long time and I worry for you that at the end of your life, long as I hope that it is, you're going to look back one day and realize that over the course of your whole life, you did very little. Like it or not, each of us, you and me, each of us has weaknesses. Everybody has things they want to hide under a basket, things about their past or their bodies or their health or their families, my goodness, the families that they'd rather not broadcast. So at the risk of asking a dangerous question, what are yours? in your more vulnerable moments, what parts of yourself are you tempted to sweep under the rug when company comes over? 
What are the things that you spend an inordinate amount of time trying to hide? And don't you think that maybe, just maybe, the time and energy that you spend trying to hide those things could be better spent in service to sharing the good news of Jesus? I mean, do you think that if you'll just let God do it, that it might actually be the case that God is less interested in how well put together you are, how smart or how savvy and that God might be more interested in how you might use all of yourself, including your weaknesses, for the glory of God. Now I'm almost done, but it strikes me that at the end of this service, we will commission the team that will represent this church as it does work in Honduras, as it has done now for 30 years. I used to train mission team leaders all over the country during my time at United Methodist Volunteers and Mission where I was on staff. And as I did those trainings, I could tell almost immediately whether a prospective team leader was going to be successful or not. I could do it by asking one question. How well do you fail? How well do you fail? It's a great question for an interview as well. I've read that it speaks volumes about how resilient someone is, how a person deals with risk, but it's more than that to me. It speaks to our weaknesses, which we all have, and the willingness to let God work through that weakness a willingness that we can all have, but which requires us to assent. For what it's worth, on this day when we also recognize all the babies that have been born or adopted into this congregation in the last year, it's also a pretty good quality for a parent, the ability to fail well. In fact, it's a pretty central part of what it means to be a church. You pick the situation. The verbs will find you. So it is that we all, each of us, each of us stands before God with weakness and fear and a lot of shaking. Our message, our leadership, our parenting, our work, our witness, our lives as followers of Jesus aren't presented with convincing wise words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And so we are reminded that our faith does not depend on the wisdom of people, but on the power of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.